Lift Park group. We have been doing these podcasts now since about October. So we're going uh, Mondays and Wednesdays. We've got quite a few on our YouTube channel and also on our Spotify channel. So definitely take a look at our Spotify channel. There's another Dare Greatly show. It's completely unrelated. I think it's a business business management show. So definitely look for Dare Greatly space. Should be pretty easy to find there. We've been doing this for a while now and we've gotten, I would say, you know, a little bit good at it, a little bit good at it. I've got an amazing team that have really worked really hard at, at, at kind of putting all this stuff together. Our show is really focused on that intersection of commercialization of space. But, but what does that mean? We focus on kind of three main areas policy, you know, where does the money come from? Where does the decisions at the federal level? come from how did that has that trickled down to the folks in the trenches doing the work infrastructure right what are we building as we move out into space and then finally uh, the money the finance the capitalization of space and so with that we've had three or four venture capitalists on the show we've had uh, presidents of companies we've had senior leadership at nasa lori garver deputy administrator of nasa was on our show just last week most of you all haven't seen that because we're still doing some edits to that it's still private we've got some really remarkable people on this show and that's been terrific i've, I've really enjoyed that our next guest we're going to bring him up in just a moment our next guest is actually i think the very first program the very first guest of the very first program we ever had back in uh fall maybe it was september of 2020 everybody knows the world was on fire back then Dr. Moser, the chief scientist of U.S. Space Force, had a question, had a problem. He wanted to talk about the difference between blue water space and brown water space. And I don't have time to go into that very much right here, but the general consensus was that blue water space is the is analogous to the Navy, where they have aircraft carriers and submarines out operating in the deep ocean. And brown water space... Uh, is analogous to the Navy's groundwater. I'm a former U.S. Marine, so they always operate in the littoral areas of the world uh, near shore. And so that conversation, debate, was raging out in the world a little bit. Uh, definitely was happening at the Pentagon. Spoiler alert, our side mostly lost. We didn't 100% lose, but we mostly lost because a lot of the big, big, big ideas in space for Space Force might not be happening quite with the speed and, and dexterity that we were hoping for. But all that said, uh, we hosted a, an event back in, I think, September 2020 and General Quast, uh, Lieutenant General Quast, a retired Air Force, one of our first, first guests. So he's been with us many times. I think maybe this is his fifth or sixth appearance through a variety of different iterations. Uh, we've had this Dare Greatly show. We've had conversations for the future, Blue Marble, Better Futures. We've had a couple different kinds of shows focused on different topics. And, and General Quast has been a part of uh, many, many of I do want to take one somber moment before we get started. There's something unfolding in the North Atlantic right now. Uh, as of a few hours ago, it hadn't been concluded. Uh, there's some folks that are on a trip down to the bottom of the world to look at Titanic, and they're missing. They've got 96 hours starting from yesterday. There's a big 
kind of global search and rescue effort, uh, trying to get organized and mobilized. I tell you this because one of the earliest finance investors in the space sector was an early investor. And he, I think he was the CEO of that company, Ocean Gate. So bad things are happening down there. So hopefully there's a, a, a good resolution to this, to this situation. But those folks have been involved in the space community for a really long time. So uh, we're all kind of watching carefully. To move away from that somber moment, let's go ahead and bring in our guest. Retired General Lieutenant General Stephen Quast from the U.S. Air Force originally. He is on to some pretty interesting things. Sir, it is really great to have you on our program again. Thanks for being a part of this. Well, thank you for having me. So we always kind of start off with, with an origin story. And, and, and we try to dig a little bit deeply into someone's background. The space sector that we're in is so new and there are so many different parts to it that it's really important to understand how people got here and how other people listening to this show can, can get into this sector. Because frankly, there's way too many jobs, way too many open positions. We can't fill them fast enough. There's remarkably smart people out there that are wondering how to get in. And now, okay, maybe not everybody's gonna become a three-star general, not everybody's gonna to get to go to the Air Force Academy, but some people are wondering how to get into this into this sector. So let's have your background. Who are you, where are you coming from, and, and why, how did you get to where you are here? We're gonna talk about where you are here later on, but let's, let's talk about how you got here. Okay, well, uh, thank you for that opportunity to talk about the origins, because it really does define the purpose or the why behind uh, how we spend our lives and uh, spend our energies. My father was a cultural anthropologist and a pastor. And he, when I was four months old, he decided to take the family to the most remote tribe he could find in Africa. And he found a tribe at 10,000 feet on Mount Cameroon, where we landed at the beach on a banana boat. Then we took a Land Rover until the road ended. Then we uh, took horseback until the trails were not accessible by horseback. And then we walked across those tie-tie bridges, they call them, but basically it's three ropes over a gorge to get to the top of the mountain. And that's where I grew up. I always dreamed of flying, uh, even though I had never seen a plane. As I grew up, you know, like swinging through the trees was as much as aviation as I got, really. But I always dreamed of flying. I didn't have an airplane around me, but I was always uh, flying through the air and looking down on the earth and had this sense of three dimensions um, that I was always fascinated with. But I also got to experience the suffering in Africa that is a result of their topography, their history, and some of the just devastating things that took place as um, different countries um, violated their hero system and destroyed their eco economics as tribal societies. Uh, we traveled a large distance around the radius of that village. Which, um, which country are we talking about? I'm not sure where, where we Cameroon. are. So Cameroon. Cameroon, West Africa, just below the sub-Saharan area where the Fulanis get in, out, out of the desert into the high highlands. And uh, Mount Cameroon is a fairly... I grew up really close to where Boko Haram is working right now at the oh. edge of Nigeria and Cameroon. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you remember a number of years ago, there was a volcanic lake and some uh, gases were released from that lake and killed a whole number of people in that region. And that, that's where I grew up. So, you know, the life expectancy there is uh, very low in the 30s, of course. So everybody I knew growing up has passed away since. 
But it gave the reason it was important for me is it gave me a sense for the suffering that's taking place in this world that most Western people do not understand. And then when my father got so ill with malaria and filariasis and dysentery and all the things that will plague somebody that's in the jungle, the reason why people only live to 35 years old. We moved back to America. My father uh, became uh, the dean of the School of Intercultural Studies at the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, Biola University, uh, in charge of the PhD programs at Tablet Theological Seminary. And that is where I uh, started realizing the, the, the beauty of our constitution and our uh, way of life. So my love for being air in the air extended into space. And so when I, when I went to the Air Force Academy, I pursued astronautical engineering. And that's where I started understanding how powerful you can uplift the human condition if you use space as your strategic high ground. When you are not shackled to infrastructure that you have to put, uh, you know, in a gorge in Cameroon, West Africa on the planet, but you could put a satellite in space to do the same thing. A cell tower in space instead of a cell tower on a mountaintop that requires transportation and logistics that's difficult to get to. It, it started framing in my mind this, this important realization that the human race could take a dramatic step into reaching for the stars for all of their energy, their information, and their resources, mm -hmm. and and be able to distribute it to all people on the planet, not just those that live next to a big river like the Mississippi or a big country that is close to the ocean. It could reach people inland, like where I grew up, at 10,000 feet on Mount Cameroon, where it's a six-day journey from the coastline, and there are no rivers or roads that can go there because of the rugged topography. Um, and that is when I joined the Air Force Academy and got an astronautical engineering degree. And then I, I started realizing there the power of policy. And so I was lucky enough to get a full ride scholarship to Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, studying public policy, international affairs and national security to put together this passion of technology, the passion of, and power of policy with this understanding of how the human condition was suffering in places around the world that could use the help of space to deliver goods and services to people that didn't have them affordably now. Amazing. I have some questions about your growing up days, though. You know, the Air Force Academy is arguably one of the hardest schools in the world to get into. You came from Cameroon. How long were you in an American high school system in order to get the requirements to get into the academy? Like that, that's a, there's a disconnect there. In the first, so I didn't go to school because there was no school. I, I actually went to the, the, the best school on the planet <laughs> and it's called the School of Sociology and uh, the School of uh, Interpersonal Relationships. The socialization that you learn in the first 10 years is really the most important thing. Learning your timetables and learning how to spell and learning physics and all those things, <clears throat> that comes a little later. And so being raised in that tribe and learning to be part of the hunting team and uh, learning to be part of the team that protects the the, the tribe and contributes to the um, to the prosperity, the health, and the security of the tribe. Because when you're about 12 years old is when you become a full-fledged member of the hunting party. You may not be the one holding the spear or uh, pulling the bow, but you are the intelligence. You're the eyes and ears. You're the kid that can climb up the tree and see 
and communicate back to the hunting party what's going on. You're the one that can you know, swing through the trees and move faster because you're agile, you're young, and you're light. One of the comments in the chat says, whoa, that's cool. So yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know, I mean, I've known you for a little bit for a couple of years now. We've never met face to face, but that's pretty remarkable. So these are gifts. And the yeah. only question in life is how do you give these gifts back to the people you love, the people you live with, your community, your nation, uh, your tribe, okay? So um, uh, I saw the intersection of my passion, my passion for being in air and space, basically being off of the earth and my passion for that, my passion for technology. I, I was a guy, uh, you know, when I came to America, my neighbor had a broken down old Ford Ranchero station wagon <laughs> that, that didn't run. And I asked him if I could fix it and sell it, would he split the proceeds with me? He said yes, so I fixed it and sold it and split the proceeds and then bought another junker. Within about five years, I was driving a Porsche 911 Kerber Carrera and I could support my flying habit of getting my private, my uh, instrument, my commercial and my uh, multi-engine and then my mechanics license so I could fix planes and work right. on them. So passion for technology and mechanics, the passion for flying, and then the passion to support our constitution in space. I couldn't afford to go to college, but so I applied to the Air Force Academy and I knew that if I went there, I could be an astronautical engineer and they would right. teach me to fly and I could use that to start learning how to be a leader. And that's where through the academy, learning about Harvard's Kennedy School of Government for public, public, public policy, international affairs and national security, I applied all those things and, uh, and graduated from there, went to pilot training and became a fighter pilot in the Air Force. But more importantly, I was able to rise through the ranks to be in charge of policy, strategy, and uh, for Africa, Europe, NATO, Europe, and Russia, not Africa at the time, but it, it allowed me then to rise to the highest levels of command in the Air Force, right. where ultimately I was in charge of all recruiting, training, and education. I was the university president for the Air Force, uh, teaching all foreign joint officers in the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, the Coast Guard that would come there for their general officer educational courses on how to be a joint force commander, uh, how to lead large teams of diverse cultures. So that cultural background came yeah. in so handy in the curriculum, the syllabus, and understanding how people can talk past each other so quickly, whether it's between two countries or between the Army and the Air Force right. or between Bostonians and Louisiana you know, natives. Culture is a powerful and important thing to understand if you want to communicate. And so all of these experiences kind of have folded together. And so when I left the military, I decided to apply them to the power of space and what an economy and space could do. So now I'm the uh, president and uh, or I'm the CEO of a company called Spacebuilt. It's a uh, Florida company that is bringing together the best engineers and the best scientists on the planet to to flip the paradigm of how we build infrastructure and logistics in space. This is a logistics company because just like Alexander the Great said Amateur generals talk about weapons and tactics and shiny objects. Professionals talk about logistics. And that's how you win. And so we are going to win in space for all of humanity because we are going to bring together. And I'm no engineer, really. I mean, just because I'm an astronautical engineering degree out of the academy, uh, if you don't do engineering your whole life, you, you can't be good at it. But I can bring together 
diverse cultures of people into a company and optimize the organizational structure, the policies in the company that incentivize innovation and taking smart risk to build a company that will flip the script on space logistics, how we build in space, how do we do infrastructure in space to do it faster and more affordable and more effective than any other company on the planet. So that's what we are doing, bringing the money in and bringing the technology in to change the game. One, even though I was only an E4 corporal in the Marine Corps, my MOS was 0431 logistics and embarkation specialist. So I have understood logistics in my bones since I was 18. I had no idea that you could get good at logistics thanks to the asvab i had i had no idea it was kind of an undiscovered superpower but the logistics of space is a different kind of animal here so what's your first thing that you're working on right now when you talk about space built are you talking about constructed down here on the ground and brought to space or are you talking about building xyz in the environment of space. Excellent. I like that smile. Right. Okay, yeah. good. All right. So what are we this is the paradigm trap that we're in. We are stuck in a way of doing things that we latched onto in the 1960s. And that is you build a satellite on the planet and then you yeah. send it into space. And when it runs out of fuel, it becomes space junk. Right. And so now we have a problem. The problem is that when it, that goes into space and it lasts for 15 years, Moore's law is we could have upgraded that thing 20 times in 15 right. years. Yeah. And now it's space junk and we got to figure out a way to get it out of the way for other satellites that might run into it. We are, we, we are doing something that is extraordinary. We are building factories and robotic mechanics in space that do the work. And so now if you send up the little modules, the, uh, the elements, the, the modularity, those things can be lifted into space without being complex or having to unfold like a gore origami right. uh, with solar panels and all kinds of intricate mechanics. You can send up all these little elements. You can snap them together in space. And now you can build something big. And, and believe me, big aperture and big power matter in space. That's where the money is. That. Right now we're trapped in this idea where you got to fit it into a little tiny tip of a rocket. Right. And it has to go through this violent ride for seven minutes to then unfold in the sanctity of space for 15 years okay and to qualify it on the planet you got to stand in a six-month line for the shaker table to uh, right. simulate the environment of the rocket yeah. you got to stand in line for eight months for the um the radiation chamber to simulate the space radiation environment you got to wait for the thermal chamber to simulate the thermal environment of space so it takes three to four years and 300 to 400 million dollars to build a satellite Right. It's crazy. Ridiculous. Our company can bypass the time and the money it takes to, to certify it on the planet because we've already certified these little Lego blocks called uh, power distribution, software, hardware, communications, propulsion. And we've qualified these things on the International Space Station already so we can throw them onto any little nook and cranny on any rocket anywhere, whether it's Rocket Labs, SpaceX, Blue Origin, you know, Stoke, all of these great launch companies that are emerging to try to compete with Elon Musk. And that's a good thing. And we can stick our little pieces anywhere in there, put them up into space and, and they go into our factory in space. And it's like it's like a warehouse. If you want a satellite now, I just pull all the parts together and I can put together whatever you ask me for and I can put it together in a day. 
And now I can qualify it in space. And so I can cut the, I can cut the price in half easily and I can cut the time by a quarter or I I can do it in a quarter of the time or less. So we talk, you know, what would cost $300 million and three years to put in space I can do for 33 million in 18 weeks. And speed and affordability matter. This is an idea that people are talking about, but we already have this qualified space equipment that proves that it's work, you know, that our electronics, all of our elements already work. And and we've done it on the International Space Station. They talk about uh, resiliency in space and Dr. Moser's talked about uh, Pearl Harbor in space. Uh, uh, The right bag of sand in the right orbit has a lot of cascading problems to the world. It knocks out a bunch of satellites. So there's a lot of demand. There's a lot of Air Force and Space Force RFPs requests for proposals for how do we handle the resiliency problem, right? So how, how do we how do we launch quickly enough of the right replacement satellites to repair or replace degraded systems up there? So you're saying that's not our problem. Our problem is build them on site so we have what we need when we need it. Well, resilience is a really critical issue. And one of the things that I benefit from is that I've been on the other side of the fence. I've been the general officer, director of requirements for all combat, you know, air and back in the day it was air and space forces, but director of uh, requirements. So I was responsible for taking engineering from the engineering benches of the nation and bringing them to the warfighter as fast as possible. And what I will tell you is resilience is a really critical thing, but there are other things that are critical too. What's nice about this is I know exactly what we need to build in order to survive in space. And I can build it in this company and I don't have to talk about it. I don't have to tell anybody, but this is uh, the capability to be resilient. And resilience can come in many different forms. One of them is if a satellite goes out or somebody takes it out, I can build you a new satellite in a day and then I can drag that satellite to the right orbit and you're back in business, baby, and you can do it affordably. That, so that's one form of resilience. You don't have to necessarily launch it if all right. the pieces and parts are already in space. Right. And launch facilities can be a very vulnerable target. If the enemy doesn't want you to replenish that satellite, it is helpful if you have the capability, many factories in space that can put one together and put it into orbit. It's a lot more expensive to try to take something out in space as it is to take something out on land. Are you also going to be handling the uh, the space tug component or are you going to have to contract that out as a service to other people? Other no, so our, our robotic mechanic can do many things. Our robotic mechanic can do payload as a service, meaning it has, you know, depending on which version, we have six of these places where I can have any customer have any space capability, sensors, communication, uh, you know, anything you want to do in space, we can do on the backs of our satellite. And that satellite also has the robotic arm and the propulsion to be able to maneuver without regret. Because as it's maneuvering around and grabbing things or doing things or fixing things or snapping together the elements and the modular components to build a satellite for you, it can also go out and uh, take a satellite that's damaged. And because of the modular nature of our design, I can unplug the boards that are bad or I can put in a new fuel cartridge so it's going to be fueled for the next five, ten years. And you don't have to deorbit. You don't have to turn it into space junk. You get rid of space junk forever because every satellite 
has a lifespan, you know, a fully burdened logistics life that can be permanently upgraded, modernized, recapitalized, and replenished. We call it reprovisioning, and we have patents Re, for sorry, that. Reprovisioning, you know, reprovisioning. Reprovisioning. It's an old Western, it's an yeah. old term, yeah. and the forts. They would reprovision the forts with the flour and the, you know, the all the things that the Western pioneers needed, and they would just come back to the fort and get the provisions they needed to go back out and do their pioneering. And we're doing the same thing in space. I, I kind of like that. I like the idea of multiple forts in key geographic locations. You know, I'm a right. fan of putting a putting a range point, side the Lagrange point, EML one. Absolutely, yeah. we're yeah. going to be in low Earth orbit, medium. Geo, we're going to be at the Lagrange points. L2 is a really important one. We're going to be on the lunar surface and around the lunar uh, orbits, and then eventually beyond cislunar uh, to Mars and beyond. I mean, there's no limit to the factories and the robotic robots that can help humanity. And with, you know, this this next March, we're going to do a mission proving out the laser com, where we are going to be communicating with the ISS, so the International Space Station, and its uh, laser transponder with ST-6, the Space Forces Satellite in geosynchronous orbit, with Table Mountain and Hawaii uh, and the ground stations. And what we're doing is we're basically demonstrating for the first time ever that we can have the same bandwidth and speed as underwater cables. And now every satellite can tap into an in, uh, basically the internet of space. Right. Sorry, let me back up for a second. That's, a, uh, that's already a manifested mission for March yes. next year? We are an implementation partner with, with the International Space Station, right. and this yeah. is one of the missions they have in their lineup. And it's supported by the Defense Innovation Unit, who has already put money in the game. It's supported by the International Space Station National Lab, and it's supported by Japanese companies because it's on the Japanese side of this. We'll be doing this. So we pulled together all of these pieces and parts, all these people that have skills, and uh, we are going to uh, prove this out. That's the fun of this. But let me just uh, kind of talk about the fundamentals of this infrastructure, this logistics. And it's essentially the same as the art of war. You know, the art of war is about not ever having to use violence. The art of war is actually about the art of peace. And uh, we say peace through strength, but it is so true. If you study history of conflict, you realize that if, if you have economic strength, you can affordably prevent conflict. If, if somebody tries to do something silly, you don't have to be aggressive. You can just be very patient and you can be very strong and you can succeed without violence. That is the goal here. And the way you do it is invest in three fundamental things. And every warfighter understands this and knows it. But they're economic things. The first is you need to be able to deliver or transport what you need, where you need it, when you need it how you need it cheaper and faster than your competition so the right place to the right uh, or the right thing to the right place for the right reason at the right time cheaper and faster than your competition the right. second thing you do is you need to be able to communicate meaning you need to be able to see what's going on around you so you understand the right thing to do okay and that actually comes before the transport because if you don't know what's going on around you you don't know what thing to deliver at what place at what time for what reason so, uh, you know, because if you are dumb and blind in space, you may act counter to your interests. So that's the, you know, so communication is the other one. And you have to be able to see what's going on, understand what's happening. So you know the right thing to do. And the third is you need to deliver energy, meaning power. 
right. uh, to every element, every person, everything in the environment. Uh, and so uh, it's fueling stations in the Pacific Ocean for our ships. Right. Or um, and, and in space, it can be solar power delivered to any element or nuclear power or whatever it might be. It can be a power pack. It can be anything you need. But uh, ultimately, what we are building at Space Built is we are building the foundation of transportation, of energy and of information in the space environment. So any entrepreneur has the elements to win in the economic gain and game. And when you win economically, you can provide peace and security, rule of law, and entrepreneurs can make risk decisions about how they build businesses in the space economy. We don't have that right now. There's too much risk. The insurance companies charge way too much. It doesn't have to be that way. We are the company that's going to flip that script. So let's talk about, so I'm pretty impressed by this, this mission that's coming up. That's actually a pretty, that's a pretty big deal. I have a hunch that, because I've known, I've known Dennis Wingo for nearly 20 years and I've known Pittman for almost that long. Yeah, uh, he's our uh, he's our chief technology officer, and Pittman is our uh, business development. I, I have a hunch that uh, because I know Dennis Wingo's background, he's probably one of the people that kind of made the the communications, the leap to the communications, the leap to supporting massive communication capabilities on orbit. I'm going to take a little bit of a leap here and say, is this also supporting? I think it's called Lone Star, the group that's trying to put a server on the moon. Is that am I, making, am I making the am I connecting the the, the dots together? Absolutely. Yeah. We we are the company that is helping Lone Star put a server on the moon. All right. So let's let's back up for a second because I know this stuff, but I want to make sure our other people know this. So talk a little bit about Wingo, a little bit about Pittman, and a little bit about uh, about Lone Star and what that role supporting role is going to look. Yeah, so our company knows how to build the software and the hardware that work in space. I mean, most of your listeners may not realize how extreme the space environment is. So if you're floating in space as a human being and you're facing the sun, you are experiencing about 450 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you turn around and you face deep space, you're experiencing about negative 450 degrees Fahrenheit. And we can convert that to uh, Celsius for our European brothers, but uh, for the American audience, that uh, gives you a sense. Uh, so imagine putting your laptop computer, okay, because all good spacecraft are flying computers. Imagine putting your laptop in a 450 degree oven and then a minute later putting in a negative 450 degree deep freeze back and forth and in that environment for 25 years. And it has to work. And then you layer on that the radiation environment where if you just put a normal laptop into space, the radiation environment will stop. That laptop will stop working in a few minutes yeah. because the, uh, the radiation kills the SCADA systems and some of the way the electrons flow. What Dennis Wingo has done in his 40 year career of learning at the feet of the Von Braun team and some of these scientists and engineers that took us to the moon, everything he builds works in space. So he, he flew the first Macintosh in space, off-the-shelf technology that went in onto the space shuttle and worked, okay? Everything he builds works. And this is why companies like Lone Star go to Dennis Wingo to yeah. build their stuff because they know it will work. And this is why Toyota reached out to us, why Amazon reached out to us, why we have these people that say, you have qualified space technology that is proven on the International Space Station. We want you to build our stuff. 
So it's not just Lone Star that's reaching out to us. It's anybody that's doing anything in space and they want to guarantee it works. They look to Dennis Wingo because he is the genius that knows how to make it happen. I've known Dennis. We're not beer drinking buddies. I don't want to overstep it. I've known Dennis probably since 2002 is probably the first, my first yeah. memory of when we met. And so let, let me tell you, you know, so I, I agree. He is amazing. But finish your, finish your point. Well, I was going to say he recovered data from NASA that NASA thought was lost forever. The super clear high resolution photos from the, uh, from the movie a couple of years ago, I think it was first man that had never been seen before. Wingo was, was the genius behind the data recover. Oh yeah. Recovery of, well, some of those uh, images. Amazing. And this is why this is this is why the big companies like Northrop Grumman are clamoring to buy his patents. Yeah. Northrop North, North Grumman got a steal. It was ATK before, but they got a steal on that. They're they're making money hand over fist on Dennis's ideas, and Dennis has a hundred more in his brain. What we're doing? There's a whole cadre of general officers that have been watching the space environment develop over the last thirty years that believe Dennis Wingo is the number one genius of our time. That's one reason I'm here. I am going to bring to bear all of the financial, the legal, and the business acumen to surround Dennis and take his ideas and change the world. We are gonna uplift the human condition and we are gonna tap into almost infinite information, energy, and resources to bring to people on the planet at affordable price points. So people in the tribe I grew up in have a data plan better than you have and they can afford it. <laughs> I love that, that's awesome. All right, so that's Wingo, very impressive. Uh, Pittman, tell us about Pittman. So Pittman has been uh, working with NASA and with startups his whole life. Mm -hmm. And he is a man that understands how to design things and how to build the business case. Uh, and he knows the bureaucracy of NASA, just like I know the bureaucracy of the Department of Defense. And we can help navigate these business deals, these contracts uh, to make space built there's going to be many companies that do this because just like Henry Ford was the first one to break the paradigm of artisan mechanics building cars that were too expensive right. and had to have the same mechanic that built it repair it. And all of a sudden now everybody could afford a car and any mechanic could fix it because somebody figured out the supply chain, the standards, and then a production line, assembly line. That's what we're doing. And so every satellite now can be upgraded by any company, anytime, because everybody knows the standard, the modularity, plugging, you know, unplugging an old card. We're building satellites we, the way we build computers today, where any computer can be upgraded with better memory anytime you want, and it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. I love this system. This is, the, we've been talking about Lego components for satellite work for, for yeah. years. And it was straight up science fiction. It was, it was, the technology wasn't there. The component level equipment wasn't there. Heck, the grippers to take a piece from here to there, that wasn't there. So we are, we are moving into that era. I didn't think we were quite there yet. So you're saying some stuff that's surprising to me. We are there, believe me. There. Uh, you know, right. it's, it's amazing how slowly we recognize the technology we have before us. And I'll give you one historical example. Back in 1903, when we were trying to invent an airplane, Congress and the American government was shoving money down the throat of the most genius aerospace or aeronautical engineer of the time, Samuel P. Langley, okay? And he, every airplane he built was crashing in the Potomac River. 
And so finally they said, stop, you know, that's enough. And they brought together scientists and engineers, the best of the breed at that time, and said, do a study and tell us whether we're wasting our money giving resources to Samuel P. Langley to build an airplane. And so if you look back at the microfish at the, at the front page of the New York Times, October 3rd, 19, I'm sorry, October 6th, 1903, the front page of the New York Times says, if we spent every ounce of our, or every bit of our money as a nation on the best scientists and engineers, it would take between 1 million and 10 million years to build an airplane. If you open up the logbook, go to the Smithsonian and look at the logbook of Orville and Wilbur Wright, October 6, 1903, you will see, it says uh, simple words, we begin building today. And two and a half months later, they were flying the first aircraft at Kitty Hawk Kill Devil Hills. That is how stuck in past paradigms we can get with yeah. regard to the state of the art of engineering. And I'm here to tell you, based on our last mission to the International Space Station that splashed down in January, that we have done the forensics on over the last few months, every element of those Lego blocks required to give you power distribution, information, energy, communication, software, hardware, propulsion, have been tested and proven. And we know how to build it. And it will last the radiation environment, the thermal environment. And it, when you build them in space, now you can qualify them in space right. and tug them out to the orbit you want. And you can upgrade them indefinitely. And you can take all that space junk and bring it back to that factory and not waste anything. You can reuse that metal. You can reuse the circuits. And if you don't want to, you can either have it burn up in the atmosphere if it's small enough and the right materials so we don't pollute or kick it out to the sun, you know, whatever you want. And then it can come back to us in the form of clean energy after the sun does its job on anything we would throw into the sun. That's really, really remarkable. So I can see how this kind of starts fitting into that kind of long-term plan that Lone Star is working on to focus on building a server farm on the moon. So what's your what's your role with that, or or is it too soon to tell? Well, we're the ones that know how to build, you know, the, the capability to make that happen. So yeah. that's you know, so we we are the engine. We are the reason, you know, we are the talent, if you will. All right, All right. good, good. Well, good. I'm I'm not, of course, but Dennis. Winter, right, 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 right. Uh, that's that's how it and, works here at Lift. And his and his and his cadre of engineers. I, I I rely on a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me. So I'll I'll I understand that role pretty well. Let's switch gears a little bit and kind of look into the future. You mentioned in the beginning of the show a little bit about space power and energy. Does the space built fit into that large ecosystem necessary to start creating space-based solar power? Or is it, or is there a little bit of a, a remove from that? No, we, we, are, we are the people that can build it. In other words, you need large aperture to do what space-based solar power. First, back up and talk a little bit about what you expect for space-based solar power and your, your vision of it. And then we'll come back to how does space built interact with that. You never want to predict how the future will unfold or what technologies work or don't work. But I, I will tell you this, you know, Dennis Wingo understands this. In fact, that's why he is a Centennial Award winner by NASA on power distribution in space. So when we energize the moon's lunar surface, it's Dennis Wingo's ideas that are gonna be adopted as a Centennial Award winner uh, of a superior idea on power distribution. Uh, solar power plays into that. 
the vision of solar power in space, what we already know is that you can convert the sun's energy in space that is intense and persistent. Yeah. It's perennial. And you can convert it into radio waves and you can beam it to Earth. You, you can basically, but safe for humans, safer than you walking out into sunshine. And you can convert it back into energy and you can already, we know you can achieve 80% efficiency. Now think about that. Any power plant we have, any solar panel, we are lucky to approach the high 20s yeah. in efficiency, okay? So we are already solar power from space can achieve 80% efficiency, meaning that you are doing it a delta of 60% more affordable than any other energy source on the planet, and it's safe for humans. Think about that, okay? But in order to do that, you need large apertures and large energy. But you can't fit large apertures on small rockets. Even the Starship is too small for the apertures we need. But if you have a factory in space that can 3D print apertures at with no limit because there's no gravity you don't right. have to fold it up like an origami into a spaceship and then unfold it in space forget that it's too long it's too expensive the engineering is too complex 3d print it in space build it in space using space material and space construction that's what our company is built on it's space built not terrestrial built space built and when you do that now, solar power from space, the entire business case closes. So I don't know if you know this. This was my personal origin story. When I was a kid, I got out of the Marine Corps, went into investment management, went from investment management uh, eventually to the Internet and eventually to space. But while I was working in the investment field, my boss assigned me a task to look at the global energy usage. And after about three months worth of effort, I came in and said, I'm sorry, but I, I failed. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, by my calculations, and this was 1991, 1992, I said, by my calculations, we're already out of energy because everything that I've added doesn't add up to how much we're using. So Obviously, I took the heat because I thought I was the one that did it wrong. I really wonder what that paper, we threw it in the trash. We, we never even finished writing it. I wonder what that paper would say now if I were able to go back and look at it. And this was before phrases like peak oil and before we started really talking about climate change, before we started really looking at the energy grids, grids of the world. And then fast forward in... 2000 and 2001 when i was first transitioning away from the internet into space my very first the very first thing i seriously looked at was space-based solar power my first mentor he's passed since but uh, my first mentor ralph nansen introduced me to the idea of space-based solar power i have been a fan from day one and and my vision of that is if you power the top 300 cities of the world uh, you've delivered 40% of the global population with clean, green, limitless energy. So I want to see Space Built start constructing that, maybe partnered with Liftport a little bit sure. to, uh, to start constructing that kind of technology and distributing that level of energy to the world because that's a game changer for the world. 
Well, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I, you know, it's funny how our history unfolds like yours did, but uh, ultimately, you know, we hunt and pick our way to a better future. And that's one of them. Absolutely. Okay. We've got about, we've got about 10 minutes left. I'd like to, I'd like to kind of look at, I, I know just a moment ago, you said you're a little reticent to you know, try to predict the future and you just made a, a really great story about how we get the future wrong. I'm going to ask you anyway to kind of imagine three futures, three, three, three points. 2025, that's not very far away. 2030 and 2035. What capabilities will SpaceBuilt have? What will be operational uh, in 2025, 2030, and 2035? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, all of these questions are predicated on funding levels. Of course. Yes. Uh, they're, they're predicated on uh, statutory and regulatory environments that can sometimes inhibit innovation. And I know that well, being an innovator in the Air Force, as we reinvented pilot training, um, I have the scar tissue to know how to work in a bureaucracy to include the U.S. government that tries to tamp down innovation because it threatens the current paradigm or it threatens lobbies lobbyists that are trying to keep their uh, trough of money flowing to their to their company so um it's predicated on a lot of factors you can't control and you can't predict yep. but if we get the funding we need we will have our mechanics in space the first one having been built on the international space station to demonstrate its efficacy which is part of our other transactional authority we have a contract with the defense innovation unit to sure. prove out because they want this so bad and they want it to be commercialized. So the first commercial robotic mechanic will be in space that was built by the robotic arm on the International Space Station. And that robotic mechanic will move around and start building space factories and other space logistics vehicles or these robotic mechanics or StarCraft as we call them. So in 2025, you'll have some of those and they will be taking orbital debris and removing it. They will be building satellites. They'll be going to uh, tug satellites to different orbits. They'll be doing all kinds of work out there and then by 2030, you will have multiple factories in space that are starting to replace the space station. So now you can do microgravity experiments because you have a facility. It's real estate in space. There'll be server farms on those uh, factories. There'll be uh, external payloads as a service on those factories. Those factories will be putting together satellites and distributing them. They'll be repairing a satellite or if a satellite gets destroyed, uh, they'll be fixing it. They'll be deorbiting all the space junk. They will be doing the work of the space economy to get us away from a dangerous environment that takes years to get into, where if you want a satellite and you give me the money, I can build it in a day. And then a few days later, it's tugged to the right orbit doing the right thing. In 2035, we will be in cislunar space. Uh, we will have built an internet in space. So every satellite can talk to every other satellite and you can see and hear what's going on around you. And if you get in trouble or if some other actor is doing something bad, if there are pirates, thugs and thieves in space, like we found on the open oceans, right. there is an international organization and a space force that's bringing them to justice. Just like we have flagged ships on the open ocean that have the authority to, to bring pirates, thugs, and thieves to justice, no matter where they live, as they try to hide in the seam line of cultures around the world. That's what will be happening in 2035 if we get the money and the governance, the bureaucracy, the lobbyists, the things that Eisenhower warned us about, where our own military industrial complex will lobby Congress for laws that kill any new idea right. because it's not their idea, or it makes it's disruptive 
to uh, an, a, a, a community that is invested in something hasn't quite gotten their return on investment and they don't want the Wright brothers stealing the idea of an airplane. I have been up against that bureaucracy for a while. It's, it's sometimes like hitting a brick wall. All right, so that's, that's interesting. So 2025, you'll have the first demonstrated systems operational by 2030. It's just gonna be, uh, I don't wanna say more of the same, but more capabilities no. distributed to more places. Factories. Uh, the factories are important. Yeah, you'll have factories. You, they, they could be there even faster if we get the funding. But, but, you know, you can't grow too fast or you don't have strong legs. You know, a company has to grow uh, prudently. And so this is the prudent path I'm talking about. Funding that is prudent. And by 2030, we'll have factories. And those factories will be in Leo, helping with Leo constellations. They will be in Mio and Geo helping with those constellations. There will be some uh, probably already out at the, in the lunar orbit helping with the lunar activity that's going on, the Artemis program and others. Because now you have a distribution logistics system where you can get the right parts to the right place and you can actually do work. And with our laser communication infrastructure, you can have an engineer on Earth, the goggles, the virtual and augmented reality goggles, manipulating the mechanics of the robotics, building things, deconstructing things, and doing things in real time at the speed of light. So you don't have this, it doesn't take as long to do work in space as it does right now. I can, I can imagine, I mean, you kind of alluded to uh, Space Force's role as 2025, 2030, 2035, as your, your company grows, as the rest of the ecosystem of space grows, the, the cislunar iconosphere of space grows, what do you need as a private company? What do you need from Space Force? What do you expect from them you know, in service to the country? Yeah, uh, so in service to the country from the perspective of CEO of, of SpaceBuild. Right. So having been on both sides of this fence and understanding uh, the Department of Defense in detail, one of the reasons why I understand the Department of Defense in detail is because I was part of, they call it the Quadrennial Defense Review, but essentially I was the representative general officer from the Air Force in 2013 that delivered a report to President Obama that delivered it to Congress. And this is Congress's demand that they want to see a 20-year strategy. And that strategy has to be informed by every program, classified, unclassified, talking about what should we do as a country to defend our constitution, our way of life, and our economy and our government. And this is where uh, the idea of a space force was first introduced. Because the, the brilliant people that are studying the arc of civilizations and technology and how technology is so game-changing for economics, security, prosperity, and health, this was an idea that was in that package, but it, there was not the political will because it takes a lot of political capital to insert something so disruptive as the idea of a space force. So, 2013, is that correct? 2013, yep. Yeah. It was delivered in 2014, uh, January 2014, but it was it, the work was done the entire year of 2013 by a whole host of brilliant people. It did not include me. I was just the general officer in charge, and we always laugh. General officers really don't do any work. They just... If they give a good vision and hire the right people, you can change the world. But if they aren't visionary or they don't hire the right people, nothing happens, okay? Right. So by 2019, December of 2019, we finally had the political will because Congress now had the education of what was going on in space, what our competition was doing in other countries, and what America was doing. And it was ironic that they voted bipartisan for a space force 
as they were impeaching the man that brought the idea in. But this reveals how important this is. But they, they only took a half step. They said, okay, well, we're, we know we need to do it, but we'll make it as part of the Air Force. So the problem now is that the Air Force controls the budget. Right. So if there's an extra dollar, it will go to an airplane, not the Space Force necessarily, okay? And until the Space Force is truly independent, just like air power did not reach its full potential until it was independent in 1947 because the Army spent every dollar on the infantry. Until the Space Force has an independent secretary that reports to the Secretary of Defense and the President, until that happens, the Space Force will be crippled and hobbled by suffocation of a service that is rightfully trying to do their job of air power. But we know human nature and organizational behavior. And if you don't let brilliant people focus on something to be the best in the world, if they have to be the jack of all trades, they're the master of none. And we will lose the fight. And we lost the fight in the tank in World War II because we didn't make the tank independent. Mechanization was not independent. It was run by the infantry. The airplane was run by the Army, not an independent Air Force. And we lost more airmen in the air in the European theater than all the Marines across both theaters of World War II because we did not figure out that the bomber would not get through. And it was because of a lack of focus, funding, and it was being stolen away by the lack of independence. So if you want to be world class, if you want to be a world class basketball player, you can't be working for a football team. It just <laughs> right. doesn't work. It's human nature, it's organizational behavior, and it's money, alignment and focus and priority of money. And so we don't have that with the Space Force right now until we get a president that is willing to work with Congress to make the Space Force independent. We will lose this fight to countries that have already made their Space Forces independent. I love these conversations. I'm so happy that you joined us once again for, for to, to share your advice and wisdom. I love the idea of Space Build. That's really, really exciting. Hats off to you for like jumping into the ring here. Uh, I think this is going to be, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I saw us losing uh, to other countries and I was tired of trying to push Congress. It's like pushing a rope uphill. So I decided to join the fight in the front line and that's why I'm the CEO and chairman. Terrific. Thanks a lot, sir. Appreciate it. We will uh, we'll talk again soon. I can't wait to see this uh, this experiment then. All right. Okay. Thanks a lot, Thank sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.